Welcome to Party Like a Marketer, the podcast dedicated to cannabis marketing, public relations, and authentic storytelling. I'm your host, Lisa Buffo, the founder and CEO of Cannabis Marketing Association. You can find me on Instagram at LeeBuff and Twitter at LeeBuff21. And you can find us on Instagram at Party Like a Marketer or at Canna Marketing as well. Whether you're new to this space or an experienced professional, Party Like a Marketer has something for you. Today's conversation features Claire Kaufman, the Director of Client Services at Brightfield Group, an industry-leading CBD and cannabis market research firm. Claire is a nationally known CBD and cannabis business and marketing strategist and has worked in the CBD and cannabis space for the past seven years. She has worked in-house for vertically integrated cannabis companies and formally as the Northwest Regional Director for BDS Analytics. Claire has also recently served on the OLCC, Recreational Marijuana Business Council. Her take on the future trends of the cannabis industry and questions facing marketers and entrepreneurs are sought by national and international media, cannabis industry leaders, and key players in the traditional marketing world. Claire holds a master's in business administration from the Grazia Audio School of Management at Pepperdine University, where she focused on brand marketing and development. Hey, welcome everybody to today's episode of Party Like a Marketer. Today's guest is Claire Kaufman, the Director of Client Strategy for Cannabis at the Brightfield Group. Claire, thank you so much for being here today and welcome to the show. Thanks, Lisa. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to tell you what's up, you know, in some of our consumer research. And um, thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Yes, of course. I've learned so much personally from you over the years. So I'm really excited to share this with our audience um, and some of the exciting things you've shared with us and CMA that you've learned about the cannabis industry and the cannabis consumer. So Let's jump right into it. First, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, who's Claire? What's your background? And what, what brought you to cannabis? Oh, gosh. I'll keep that <laughs> as brief as possible. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think a lot of people in cannabis um, came into working in this industry because they wanted to. It was a choice that they made. And same for me. So um, I grew up in the 1980s on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and, you know, we were the only white people in my street. Like I saw the drug war. I didn't realize that's what I was seeing when I was a kid. Like I really didn't. All I knew was that like, you know, my neighbors looked different than me, but they were still my neighbors. And I also sort of saw the police and I saw, you know, a lot of what was going on. And I mean, I was like informative years and um, I don't know, my synagogue growing up, we shared with a, um, a african-american baptist church so you know they would like cover up the cross on saturday you know and it was just like i grew up um and then we moved when um when i was uh seven we moved to falls church um in virginia and uh i was the only jewish kid so you know uh <laughs> it was super waspy and um my dad funny enough um is a cia guy so he um works funny enough very similar to my job <laughs> a data analyst and I guess storyteller of data but just for a different uh team I guess you could say um <laughs> it runs in the family but um you know and my mom's a science writer so uh uh anyway I didn't realize that um witnessing what I saw in sort of those years would ultimately come to be so formative in my cannabis um 
life, but they did. So, you know, I ended up doing Teach for America um, for a couple of years. Um, but then I really realized during that time, sort of the power of economic development and the power of jobs and the power, sounds <laughs> a Republican, but like, you know, I really just was like, you know, when I was teaching in Compton and different places like that, I was like, no, like these communities need to be revitalized. Like we need to get these communities, you know, going. And so um, I started working in microfinance and stuff like that. And then um, went to get my MBA uh, at Pepperdine for a couple of years and then um, had my daughter. So we moved up here to um, Portland. Uh, then I started working at Kettle Foods the um, brand, the chip brand. <laughs> um, and so we launched Backyard Barbecue there. And that's when I really started getting into consumer data um, and using consumer data from like sources like spins or, you know, different kinds of things um, to, to launch products. Uh, and then I started getting into cannabis as an activist. Um, I started an organization called The Or, which is like folded, but it was alive for five years. We were funded by um, Dr. Bronner of David, David, well, David Bronner of Dr. Bronner's Hemp Soaps. Um, and it was a Jewish uh, drug policy organization. So I was trying to figure out um, sort of the soul of activism in a way, um, trying to understand how to tell a story, you know, to actually get people talking about this um, in living rooms, like from a civil rights perspective. You know, because to me, it's one thing to tell the economic story of it. Um, and, you know, I wasn't even a heavy like pot user in high school. Like I didn't start using cannabis regularly until I was a mom, quite frankly, you know, but to me, I just like couldn't be part of it. I just like couldn't look at a whole community of people that was doing exactly what I was doing and was suffering as a result of it and was like these families were being torn apart from the drug war and people were being a car. Like I saw it when I taught in Compton, I did. And I was like, I can't, like, this is wrong. And I just couldn't be part of it. And I knew that the only way that things change in this country is when it makes economic sense. That's just the way it is. That's like when green finally became a thing, it had to be profitable, you know? And that's just yeah. what, that's what America is. <laughs> so, um, you know, nine years ago, I started working in cannabis and um, my ex-husband was running the Oregon legalization campaign. And um, I don't know, I guess I held a premonition. I guess I was just saying, I'm gonna do this. <laughs> so I just, uh, I was working at Travel Portland at the time and um, I started a vlog and started calling people. Um, you know, and being like, oh, what do you think about marketing? You know, because I don't pretend to be the best. I don't know. But like, I do know that my whole career, I've been really good at asking questions um, and, you know, asking the right people questions. And I think sometimes like that inquisitive mind state takes you really far in cannabis. Um, anyway, one of the guys I ended up calling was Roy Bingham um, of BDS Analytics. Um, before I knew it, I worked for him for a while. Um, then I didn't want to be one of those like, like talkers, you know, like people that like my data, but they've never like done anything. They don't actually understand like the day-to-day -day of what these people are going through. They don't understand like the legal hoops they have to deal with. They don't understand like anything real. I didn't want to be that person. So um, I went and I was, I worked at Groundworks for a while um, as their wholesale marketing person. So I learned a lot about sort of the product and like the wholesale and the B2B sort of movement and the products and taking it to market and blah, like, you know, that I did that for a couple of years. Now I've been at Brightfield. So that's what we're here mostly to talk about. But I say all of that because, you know, um, 
I work here at Brightfield as the director of client strategy for cannabis for a reason. Um, you know, I love the team here at Brightfield. They're a really smart team and I get the luxury of working with cannabis clients here, both large and small, um, and helping them sort of connect the dots between the consumer data, the point of sale data that they're likely seeing, because I worked with that too, um, and then like operationally what their challenges are. And so I don't sound tone deaf to those when I talk to them. And I think people appreciate that. So, you know, the whole arc of the story is just that, you know, I'm in this because I do believe that, um, you know, it has a larger role to play both in people's wellness and their lives and, and enforcing a political conversation that is like already emerging more and more, right? It's like, you know, um, so I'm in it for a lot of reasons, um, but I, yeah, it's been interesting to watch it grow. I don't take that for granted, you know, as a nerd, as, as like a rebellious nerd, as I call myself, like, I just, I'm like, Oh, so interesting. Like the, the trends I see or like, um, you know, the kinds of companies I see coming out. It's still interesting to me, you know, it's still interesting. It's, it's fascinating. And it's, it, I didn't know that about your background that you kind of started with teaching and then you got into the activist data and license holder side. So you definitely are coming from this perspective and seeing it very well-rounded and over time, um, particularly in, in Oregon where you're based. Yeah. And well, I do. And, you know, my company's great in that they let me travel. So I do get the chance to um, now <laughs> for a while, obviously, I do, yeah. um, to actually like go see, see things in market and, you know, um, but I don't know. I think, you know, when you work with Brightfield, you do get um, an account director and that, you know, if you're a cannabis company is likely to be me. There's one other person. She's also amazing. Um, but uh, but yeah, so we bring a lot of experience to what we do. Um, and then the research team that we have um, is just as robust in their background, but in market research and consumer research. So, you know, um, you know, or, or the tech team in terms of what they do. So uh, we have a really smart, smart team over there. It's been a joy to work with them. So, so just to summarize what Brightfield does. So you help cannabis brands connect get insights from their data between their point of sale, their inventory, and what you're learning and seeing uh, on the market research side from consumers and help them turn that into effectively actionable insights. Am I summarizing correctly? Yeah. So we're not, to be clear, we're not a data provider that does um, point of sale data, like a BDSA sort of service. Um, I, like I said, I, you know, used to work there. They're wonderful. Um, and I would never tell a company that they, you know, shouldn't have that data or that like, you know, I'm a rising tides kind of gal. So let me just explain the difference. So our data, we, we have market data that um, has category, uh, state, category and subcategory level kind of information, both this year and projected out. That's formulated by our analysts and by our research team. We also provide a lot of context around that. So who are the major competitors? Who are the major, you know, um, in Canada, we have Canada research also LPs. Who are the major MSOs? What states are they operating in? What brands are they operating? Who are the biggest brands right now in the space? What are the biggest product innovations happening in different categories? And that's updated by our analysts like on a quarterly or sometimes monthly basis. So there's that kind of market data, but the bulk of what we do at Brightfield is consumer and brand focused research. 
So what we specialize in is we have um, a really robust panel that we've been doing every quarter um, with American consumers, and that is um, blinded and normalized um, according to age, gender, and geography. And we ask questions, um, and we've been able to track it over the last two years about consumption patterns, habits, demographic changes. Um, and you know, this is the same sort of panel provider that like any sort of other CPG company out there would use. So it's not like we're some sort of like weird internet survey. <laughs> like this is yeah. how research is done. <laughs> yeah, this is just how it is. Um, today and uh, and so we can provide you know our marketing most of the clients I serve on a regular basis are VPs of marketing um, or VPs of innovation or product development and so you know I help them understand directionally where is the market going directionally where is consumer behavior going and then we would sort of you know, maybe work with their team to bring in if they have a point of sale data. Sure, we can look at that too and sort of figure out what that what story that's telling. You know, I have found that point of sale data is often telling the story of fulfillment more than it's telling the story of potential market and consumer demand. And that's why they're both important um, because you want to remain focused, but you can't just deny the reality of what's going on right now in terms of your, your price and your market and your share. And like, you know, you have to sort of do both. Um, and like, if you if you don't want to, like, well, <laughs> probably not the best industry for you. Um, but uh, so, so we specialize on the consumer side of it. And then we also ask, you know, um, for a lot of our brand clients, we help them understand the value of their brand um, to consumers. And then, it, or if they're considering a rebrand, we do like a ton of concept testing. So um, I might have someone come to me and say, hey, uh, I just got a bunch of funding. Actually, you know, um, this did happen. Um, I have an, or, you know, a sponsorship from a large national organization. I want to launch a gummy for seniors. What do I do? Um, and so we are able to dive into the need states of consumers, um, particularly seniors, um, particularly seniors that use at a rate that would be, you know, an actual volume of a customer. So we can look at daily senior consumers who take gummies and understand what's important to them and help make sure that when our, you know, um, when our client brings a new product to market, that they're not going to waste hundreds of thousands of dollars on packaging that isn't going to resonate with their customer. I mean, I think that's what exists in a lot of other categories. You would never just like launch a product without first testing it. That just doesn't yeah. happen in other categories. So here, I, I hope that we can get to the core of what consumers are wanting and needing out of products now that we've got the understanding of like, okay, you know, supply chain, here's how you make an extract. Okay. You know, cause right now, when you think about the product portfolio that's in the market, it's not particularly consumer driven um, yet. It's starting to be, um, you know, but it's not like brands are like, huh, what do the customers want? You know, cause they're, they're sitting there trying to yeah. figure out all their operational stuff. And I don't know. So, okay. Yeah. Well that, yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I mean, we work with business owners all the time and operations, at least from our view is such a heavy focus because there's so much on the compliance side that they 
they're almost, you know, doing their best to stay afloat and make sure everything is checking those boxes. So services like what you're offering, um, you know, are really needed and, and make a lot of sense. So with that, um, I know you, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like, yeah, you know, I think my job, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Like I work in a sales job, but like, I don't, do a lot of selling data. So the thing about selling data is nobody looks at the insights that we have at Brightfield and it's like, oh, wow, I really don't want this. That has never happened, never. And what happens is talking about data is really a larger conversation about a culture of data interpretation at the company overall. And because in order to buy data, you have to go get approval for it. And in order to get approval for it, somebody has to be there to use it. And in order for somebody to be, to be there to use it, they have to have the time to use it. And then if they have the time to use it, is anyone going to listen to it anyway? So when I sell data, so much of the conversation I have isn't about the data itself, but it's about the culture of how companies use data and build a framework of bringing data into their larger conversations of strategy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting uh, nuance to pull out because I, I definitely think that um, we've seen it as an issue with, or something cannabis companies are learning to build in um, earlier on so that they of can course. make sense of it. Yeah. So, so I'm curious about what some of these insights are. Um, like what's kind of the big thing you're seeing coming out of your research lately and, and why is this important? I know you've shared a, a bit with us in you know, certain states and certain categories, but mm -hmm. is there anything that you've really been uh, working on that, that, that you wanna share um, that's timely and relevant? Yeah, so we've got a bunch of really interesting things to share. So um, we are about to publish our wave two, um, but our wave one showed us that the cannabis consumer in the US is uh, becoming more female, um, is shifting to be more female. Um, we aren't seeing this in all states, um, but we are seeing it in most states. And why is this important? Well, I think during COVID, we started to see a little bit of a disconnect between the demographic of the person who was going in the store to make the purchase and the demographic of the person who was driving the purchasing decision. So if you asked a dispensary owner, and we, and we told them that consumers are likely to be female, they might be like, nah, -uh. you know, I never get, women don't come in here. Da -da -da. But, you know, our data captures what happens in living rooms before they ever get to that store. And we have found that women are more and more driving those decisions. And that I think is the key important takeaway is that there is a consumer, you know, to be marketed to and that doesn't always look like the person that's coming in the door to buy it. Does that make any sense? That makes a lot of sense. And I think, <laughs> and I think as marketers, we used to like think they were the same, but they're not the same anymore. Yeah. And, and I think COVID also changed that in the sense where, um, you know, it's still, if you might've been shopping with your partner, now it's one person in. So someone sitting in the car or someone staying at home. So you're not making that purchase together when you're out running the grocery. It could be that dedicated person, which personally for me was not my shopping habit before. Some, some of those group purchases I would do together, um, but that's not the case anymore. Yeah. And, you know, I think we saw the rise of click and collect and, you know, click and collect, I think you know, brings in a whole nother dynamic of how it could have shifted things demographically. But 
But you know, one of the things that we're seeing in the data, regardless, is that the consumer is becoming more female. And why is this important? Well, you know, one of the things I get the luxury of doing as someone that works with clients all over the place and wanting all kinds of things is I play with this data all the time. And so I start to sort of see things that I'm like, oh, you know, it's kind of worthwhile watching. I don't, I don't want to make assumptions. You know, I think, I think that's like the biggest mistake I see marketers make in this industry is they don't always question their underlying assumptions. Like little things, you know, like when I tell people that chocolate is a male category, they say things like, what? It is, you know, um, and it is actually. And the consumers that are in it are really, are really different. And it's been that way for a long time. It isn't just like a new thing, but I guess I just mean like as a marketer, you probably wouldn't think like, you know, chocolates and like you wouldn't put that let. So I don't know that people question that kind of underlying assumption. Um, other interesting things that we're seeing is that the consumer group in California is uh, actually still very male. So that group is looking pretty much like the rest of the country used to look. Um, but now we're seeing more and more differences between states in the Midwest and states. And I, when I say states, like I mean everybody from, if we put Massachusetts, Maryland, Illinois, Michigan, Colorado, and we put all of them together, they all are states with women dominated in like um, consumer groups, all of them. Um, Oregon, uh, Oregon is in the middle, but California is really, really male. And I think this is important for marketers to understand because if they're looking to grow their brands um, in other states, for example, or in other markets, they may wanna consider Okay, do I need a different package because the consumer is different there? Um, never mind that my you know competitive set is likely different, but do I need to think about how I'm going to talk to consumers about my product based on their culture and their cultural experience? Um, you know, it is true that a lot of great California cannabis brands are going to be brands that are going to be national brands, but in order to really have a smooth sailing in that experience, I think they do need to recognize that the rest of the world doesn't look like them. You know, it looks, there's a reason I think, um, my dad went to college in Peoria and I think he said that what the funniest thing is like, that's where they test all grocery products is in Peoria, Illinois. And there's a reason for that, you know, like there is a reason why a lot of CPG companies test products in the Midwest because it's more of a bellwether for general consumer behavior than, you know, a, a Californian, for example. So I think having a tool like our consumer insights portal helps a lot of clients check themselves and say like, huh, you know, um, can that be? Because we've been fielding this now for two years. Um, it's 3,500 consumers every quarter. So, and just for clarity, any, you know, the sample size that you're looking at is always in the corner, you know, um, and anything, you can cut the data by a variety of variables. So, you know, you can ask questions about like, oh, why are old people using cannabis and what drives them to buy products and why is that different and how is that different than, you know, a millennial consumer, for example. So um, those are some of the trends we're seeing, I would say. So you're seeing, um, so you're seeing it's more female in the like Midwest and East Coast than it is on mm -hmm. the West Coast. Absolutely. And is that, 
a recent development yes. where over time it's gotten more female. Yes. Can you speak to either why and or the age demographic? Is that, you know, is that um, mostly young women? Is it, you know, is it going to older generations as well? Or what's what's driving that? Yeah. So let me explain. So we are seeing that the men and the women in a majority of those Midwestern markets are different. So the men in the markets um, are typically, uh, let me just make sure that I'm giving you an accurate, I had this open, so I didn't make a mistake <laughs> here. Um, but the men, um, let me just, I wish I could share this with you guys. You would love to see it. Um, if you are listening to this episode, hop on over to our YouTube channel to see the dashboard that Claire is sharing with us. Otherwise, go ahead and listen along and you will hear about some of her insights. So um, so if we wanted to find out, for example, um, sort of who these people were and what made them different. Um, so we would look at this dashboard and uh, we would be able to understand, okay, um, in Q1 of 2021, um, you know, we see that high level nationally, the, the female consumer um, is just a little bit bigger than the male for the first time, but we can see how they're different. So if we look at the men in the category, for example, um, we see that they are more educated. We see that they are um, more politically progressive. Um, we see that there's some clustering of um, middle age. They're a little older. Um, they're very married. Uh, they have children. They're more affluent. But the women, um, let's see if they're different. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, so they are more politically middle of the road, um, younger, um, earlier in their lives. So they're definitely a different consumer group overall, um, men and women. Um, and then we can look at this by state, so sort of what I was telling you. So if we want to look at California and how that's different. Oops, I clicked the wrong one. I do that all the time. Okay, so when we look at California, for example, we can see that the market overall is um, you know, much more male, right? So uh, decisively so. But the men in the space are, you know, very much more progressive um, than the women. So there's a little bit more of a polarization happening there. Um, but it also could be a function of age, you know, so you can look like, okay, California, California boomers, I don't know, let's make the sample a little bigger here. Um, if we are looking at California, um, boomers overall, it's still a pretty male. It's still pretty male. So, um, I mean, yeah. I, I think, I, yeah, I mean, I always like to keep my sample above a hundred. Um, statistically, anything sort of around a hundred is about a 95% confidence interval. So that means if we ran this experiment again, a hundred times, 95% of the time, it would show this result. If you want like a 98%, you can, you know, do it so that the N is higher. Or if you want it in the thousands, whatever you want, you know, people have different things, but um, you can use all of these filters, um, you know, and really control sort of and understand what's driving different consumers. So, um, you know, if you wanted to look and understand, oh, why are people buying products? Um, and why are people buying flour versus why are they buying chocolates, for example? Um, and uh, so I think it's really helpful. I mean, a lot of what I do is I help teams save time. That is what I honestly do. Um, I help teams 
get on the same page so that they're not talking about the same, you know, personal hypotheses um, 20 times in a row. <laughs> because until yeah. they have a portal like this that sort of is telling them the truth of what's going on with consumers, they're all just like, but I think it's this and I think it's that. And, you know, like it's just, um, you know, what I didn't show you on that is we actually have social media data on all those people too. So, you know, we can ask them, uh, not only does the data dive into like, when do they use cannabis versus when they use other kinds of products, um, but then it follows them further and it's like, oh, what political organizations are, you know, male flower consumers in California into? I don't know, something like that. So if you're trying to figure out like, who do I partner with yeah. or where do I put my ad or what Instagram follower person could I partner with that kind of thing? I don't know. Um, so yeah, so that's syndicated data. And then we, like I said, we do a bunch of custom stuff too. So that actually tees up my next question nicely is, so when you are working with marketers, are you, are you giving them advice as far as where to where to put their money and what types of strategies? And I ask this because I get asked all the time, Lisa, what are the do's and don'ts of cannabis marketing? What works and what doesn't? And people ask with this um, kind of this intention that there's a sil silver bullet and there's a right or wrong way to do it. And I always say, this is a very complex, multifaceted question. And I <laughs> yeah. to take a few steps back because what's going to yeah. be right for your brand is going to be very different for another brand based on yeah. your goals and your strengths and you know your your buyer persona and well, your, and your ultimate financial so, goals. You know, like is your goal to get yeah. acquired? Okay, that's going to have an entirely different KPI set and marketing goal than you know if your goal is to. Uh, I don't know, just potentially get more doors. I mean, there's a variety of different um, positionings that companies could want. I mean, I do, at Brightfield, you know, most of our clients are, um, I would say they're mixed. Like I would say we have very large clients, like, you know, like most of the data companies in the space, we have both um, like tobacco, Alcbev, you know, um, and then uh, different like fight like different pharmaceutical companies that are interested in it. We work with a variety of different clients, but then we also work with a lot of the MSOs and a lot of the different LPs in Canada um, of all different sizes. You know, so I have clients with just like one shop, two shops, and a grow. I have clients, um, you know, and like I said, I have clients that are doing both CBD and cannabis and are trying to figure out how to do that. I have clients that are trying to import from, you know, Israel into the UK. We do research on that. Like I have clients that are facing all kinds of business problems um, that we help them solve, whether that's, you know, but we're not like a design agency, um, yeah. but I do help my clients write good briefs for the agencies they manage um, because I know what it's like to be a marketing director in these companies. and they give you these budgets and you hire people. If you're lucky, if you're not doing it yourself, you're hiring someone. And those people are like, Ooh, I get to work on a marijuana brand. And they're like, so excited. <laughs> and they have no data whatsoever. And they have no context and they have no experience. And like, then the client gets this thing. That's like, 
not based in reality, but instead based in like the pent up creative expression of like, you know, I see a lot of like pretty things that I wish my clients had asked the customers what they thought of those first. And I just want for my clients, yeah. for them to make the best use of the marketing dollars they do have. That's honestly all I want for them. <laughs> I do. Um, and have you seen any trends in the sense of, and I know, so when you presented the Do Brands Matter study oh, from yeah. California, one of, the, one of the takeaways, and I talk about the study all the time. One of the takeaways from that was awareness is really big right now and to focus at the top of the funnel and building familiarity with your brand. Are there any um, any trends I think you've seen at the high level from the VP of marketing perspective as far as an investment in this um, is going to lend you to a better ROI than not, even if it's just getting this data, but have you seen anything where... Um, any, any common ground you can share yeah. as far as marketing strategies to help these, these cannabis brands that are our listeners? Sure. So let me just quickly explain, um, just as a recap, what the study is that you're referencing. So we did a study um, that was a brand health study. So we've been tracking brand health in hemp-derived CBD and then also in Canada for Canadian, Canadian brands for a long time. But tracking brand health in the U.S. is a total pain because every state has a different competitive set right? It's not like fielding a national thing with national brands or something like that. So we decided to tackle it for the first time in California and Colorado in the form of a report. And that's the report that you're talking about. So we decided to study what do people think about brands? Um, how are they converting through the funnel? So awareness, consideration, purchase, and loyalty. So, you know, do they know about brands? Are they willing to buy them? How they actually purchase them? And then loyal in our study was if you purchase them, um, uh, at least twice and we're highly likely to recommend them. And then we also tracked purchase in the last three months. So what we discovered um, in that data is that across both states in all categories with all consumer segments, the brand repurchase rates were close to 85 to 90%. Okay, so that's like, um, so you know, and yeah. I did a bunch of research afterwards trying to figure out like what other industries are like this? Like what other things are like this? So beauty products are like this. Um, and so I guess once people buy like a beauty brand, they don't stray from it. Nicotine is also like this. So uh, tobacco also like this. So I don't know what this means. I'm just telling you as a market researcher, nerd person that we're seeing some sort of, it also might be a, a product of channel right? Because people often go to the same place all the time. But when we look at the consumer data, and this is the benefit of having both, right? In most states across consumer groups, we see that desired effect, I guess you could call that the high. I think it's also about consistency, um, outranks price as a purchase driver across like most states. So, sorry. <laughs> um, so I think what concern, I think what's important about um, about that is, you know, people and consumers are still gaining trust in the category overall. And if you have a product that is delivering for a customer, they will not stray. They are so grateful to have found something that is working for them, that they will do anything to buy it. And in fact, 
when we ask consumers, you know, about a variety of brands across a variety of categories, would you go out of your way to buy this brand? You know, overwhelmingly, most of the time, like 70% of consumers were like, yeah, I, I would. Um, so that's, if you're not like totally paying attention to that, that's crazy. Um, so I think that is really, really important. Um, it tells you the importance of your sales team in terms of getting space. Um, but um, I, I also think what it tells us is, so the other thing we're investigating at Brightfield, and I think this might be interesting to some of your listeners, is the importance of bud tenders. So when we zoom out and we look at this overall, it, my, my clients who are brands and or retail operators, they want to know what lever do I pull to make what outcome, right? Whatever outcome they're looking to get, whether it's more sales, more feed and whatever it is, you know. So they're trying to figure out what lever is it? Well, that's exactly what we try and help them <laughs> figure out. Um, sort of what is driving what um, and helping them actually um, make the most of those opportunities. And I, I want to take a step back to what you were mentioning about the brand study and consistency. Because I remember when you presented it to us, you had said things that brands are differentiating now, like consistency and taste, to your point that c consumers are very grateful about for that at this point in time, is also a, a present time snapshot of where the industry is. Totally. So while that may totally. maybe a, a differentiator now, that'll be our, our baseline it's in table the future. Stakes. And you'll Same have to thing differentiate. with edibles and fast yeah. acting. Like I have a lot of clients who have fast acting edibles and maybe I'm wrong and I love to be proven wrong. I think that's what's fun about doing market research is sometimes you're like, oh, well, I was totally wrong. You know, I, uh, but like, I, I think right now it's a big differentiator, but like in two or three years, a lot of edibles are going to be fast acting. And I, I yeah. don't know if there's going to be a market for a slow acting edible. I just don't know who's going to be like, yeah, I'm you know, unless I'm going to take it and then drive, I don't know what people are doing, but like maybe there's an occasion of use or need state where I want a slow acting edible, but like a majority of consumers are going to not want that. It's going to become a table stake of the product world. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I think flavor remains, we see wild gaining shares in state after state after state and why their focus on flavor is very clear. They have a promise and they deliver and, you know, they are owned by, um, I think it's Wild Spirits or Wild Roots, Wild Roots Spirits um, up here in Oregon. And so, you know, they just brought a lot of that CPG expertise um, into that like package. But, you know, um, I think, I think that people uh, we see a lot of brands ultimately being successful positioning on flavor um, and, well, it depends on category, but yeah, and, and flower too, I think aroma is undervalued. Um, we see a lot of consumers and bud tenders telling us how much aroma matters. That might be something to keep in mind, but. And I, I want to get back to your point about bud tenders too. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Tell me about that. Like they... I think we all in the industry know that they matter, but I think COVID also changed it a little bit once we had, you know, folks were moving to more online ordering and trusting what they knew and, and word of mouth. But what, what are you seeing with bud tenders and what can brands and businesses take away from that? Mm -hmm. So 
first of all, we are just understanding the relationship between bed tenders and consumers and purchases. Let's just be clear. We are just starting to understand the, the influence of that relationship. So the things that I speak of are just things that we've started to observe. When we ask bed tenders how, what percentage of sales they think they're influencing, right? Um, and this is a panel of a thousand bed tenders. Um, they say they're influencing about 85% of sales, right? Okay. When you ask consumers that same question, what's driving you to make a purchase? They say 11%. They say bed tenders are influencing 11% of their sales. Yeah. So it's a big difference. Yeah, it's a really big difference. So, you know, I think to your point, like COVID, it's like complicated. There's click and collect. What does the bed tender mean anymore? What is that? There's a lot of nuance there. But like, let's just say that the truth is somewhere in the middle. Let's say the bed tender is influencing 30% of decisions. That is already huge. Like, let's just, yeah. that's huge. That's like, what if I were a marketer and I was looking at like, what drives sales? <laughs> and I saw bud tenders as 30%, I would like be like, I would just ditch everything. I mean, I would, you know, I think understanding what motivates bud tenders is what we're after. So we are working together on putting, to get, uh, putting together a syndicated panel of bud tenders um, that our clients can ask questions to <laughs> on a regular basis um, and ask their opinion about things. Um, you know, I also think uh, we see brands um, and we see bud tenders having sometimes um, a lot more negative influence on sales than they do positive influence on other sales. So um, we, <laughs> so for example, uh, and I witnessed this first time when I was a marketing director at a vertically integrated company, but I help my clients all the time. A lot of them, they own retailers, like they own retail shops, but they also have brands and they're trying to like go get additional space at other retailers. And they're like, why should I give you any space here? Like, you know, you're just taking my customers or, you know. So I, I help a lot of people sort of thread the needle between like how to launch brands and operate retail. And, you know, with bud tenders, I think they often, they are politically motivated. They don't like the man. Yeah. I mean, demographically, yeah, they, they don't. You. Yeah. No. No, I've and, had multiple experiences where I've walked in and they've, they've, I've asked for a brand and they've said, no, you're not going to like that. Like th there's times when they'll be very yes. for it, but they will also tell you when not, which is looking in some sense as a consumer, but I can understand that sentiment. Right. Of course. And as a client, like I've gone into shops or had other people go into shops and tried to buy a brand and been said just like that. Oh, no, no, you yeah. don't want that. Oh, I don't like those people. Oh, you don't want that. And it's like, it's nuts. So um, to that end, we are trying to understand what drives, but not only what bud tenders are using now, what products are using now and how they're using cannabis now, but what drives them to try new products and what drives them to actually recommend products. Um, so we're trying to actually do that and ask, um, we find that they're a really willing audience. Um, but again, I mean, at Brightfield, we're about providing our clients with high quality 
sources of data that they can then like triangulate and look for what the core story is here, you know? Because if you can find something that's motivating consumers and you can find something that's also motivating bud tenders, then you're done. Like, good, yeah. find the same thing. In the middle and of the Venn yeah. diagram. Exactly, exactly. That's yeah. what you're trying to solve for, right? You're making the salespeople happy. You're making everybody happy, you know, until next quarter when it all changes. <laughs> yes, yes. Or next year as well. Well, Claire, yeah. I know um, we're sh we're running short on time, so I just want to uh, ask if you have any you know final pieces of advice you want to share with our audience in general, and or if you could talk a little bit about um, how folks can engage with you in Brightfield Group. Oh yeah, so um, I think the best way to engage would be if you want to take a look at a demo um, to give you an idea of costs, um, just to give clients an understanding. So. Our you know, market level licenses are um, pretty approachable. So an annual license to that is $7,800, right? That's for all states, all categories, who the competitors are, what's going on with product innovation, just sort of a general market license that people can use to build their financial models and do all that kind of stuff. So our consumer portal is more expensive. So that license is 16,500 for an annual license. And I'm like, oh my God, I hear everyone being like, so much money, so much money. Um, <laughs> so it's fine. Um, uh, that it is a lot of money. Um, I often get my clients started on a six month license. Um, so we don't have to do an annual. And also um, I always tell my clients, I want you to think about all the money you're gonna save not just about the money that this is costing you right now. And it's forcing you to have some conversations that you need to have. And, you know, typically um, a six month window and people always renew after that. Cause it's just, they, they really need this information. It's just a hard thing to pivot to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Grand Health too will be refielding this fall. And then um, if you guys want to get involved with the bud tender study, um, if you want to ask some questions to the panel, or um, if you want to be part of the larger syndicated group, um, you can email me. So I'm sure the email will be on here. Uh, C Kaufman, uh, K-A-U-F. M-A-N-N, two N's. It's like the only way to reach me <laughs> to misspelling is always um, at brightfieldgroup.com or LinkedIn. Awesome. <laughs> LinkedIn's always great. Yeah, and, so that's any, fine too. Um, any last pieces of advice for marketers in this space? Uh, and particularly those, I would say, who are small businesses or just getting started that, you know, you, you wish you knew earlier yeah. or, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I think for the small consumer, for the small companies that are just getting started, I think the best piece of advice I can give is to uh, really make sure that your product is rock solid um, in the minds of consumers before you try and uh, and grow it. I think um, really slowing down um, and doing the testing that's required to ensure that you will be successful. I know um, that that sounds expensive, but for companies with small budgets, spending on this kind of thing is almost more important because they don't have any money to waste. They can't market in the wrong place. They can't make the package wrong. They've got one shot to get it right. And so a lot of my clients, the best piece of advice that I give them is to slow down. I see people rushing. Um, 
I mean, I know that sounds so, so, so obvious, but they, everyone's like, ah, we have to do this so fast. And so, and it's like, no, because if you do that, you're not going to see the forest through the trees in the sense that you're not going to see what the larger trends are that are going on with consumers that you need to be aware of. And otherwise you're just going to make a product for this consumer this quarter. And that customer isn't even going to exist in a year. It's just, I think people need to slow down and really think through if your goal is to get more sales, what is the actual long-term best way to do that? That's the most yeah. obvious advice ever. It's the worst. But I think that's no, true. I no, think that's the I number one thing I see. That's the mistake is I see people moving too fast and they don't slow down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of pressure, I think, from the industry to, to keep up and stay ahead. And that that can be felt sometimes more than, you know, what, what yeah, you're saying. So actually, I, I do have really one more little advice. teeny piece of advice. I think you know, if there was some sort of psychological support group for cannabis marketers, I think it'd be well attended because sometimes as someone who sells cannabis data, I get to talk to all kinds of VP of marketing. Like I've had people cry on the phone. Like I am as much a psychologist as I am a data scientist and consultant sometimes. And like, this is tough. And working in this industry is tough, especially if you're someone who is, you know, an achiever and results driven. And you really wanna have a sense of achievement and a, and a sense of impact in your work. And you just feel like so frustrated. And, you know, I think my advice would be to just like sit back for a second and realize the front seat you have in history and that, you know, things will happen in time. It will all happen in time, but it is really, really a real, we're all feeling it. Like I can tell you, I talk to people all over and everyone is feeling it. So you should just know that if you are feeling that way, <laughs> other people are also, <laughs> you shouldn't feel alone in your stress is all I'm saying. Yes. Yes. I can validate that firsthand. Um, <laughs> we sometimes act as, as that group as well. So yeah, I, I hear that. <laughs> I bet. Well, Claire, where I, I know, I know you got to go. So I want to thank you so much for your Thanks time. Again and sharing your insights. This was so awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. I hope we have some good stuff in here we can use. And it was a pleasure as always. I, I hope I can come back sometime. It was, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you, Claire. Have a good one. Bye, you too. Have a good day. Bye, everybody. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Party Like a Marketer. Check us out on Instagram at Party Like a Marketer and on our website, thecannabismarketingassociation.com and engage with us. We love to hear from you. We'll see you next time for another episode next week.